επίκρανε αυτόν γεφθάμενον της αρκός αυτού και τούτο προλαβών της Αγίας ευγόης. Ο Άρης της είναι επικράτη, συναντήσασικά, επικράτη, You're listening to Vexed, a program on the Ephesus School Network. I'm Andrea Backus, your curator through biblical literature and its world and culture. Just as a museum curator selects, acquires, cares for, repairs objects, and discovers frauds and counterfeits, I'll be sifting through our world and culture for examples to help us better understand the biblical text. Today's discussion is about translations of the Bible. We do not read the Bible in its Hebrew or its Greek. We read the Bible in translation. Now, there are, of course, many translations of the Bible into many languages. Ethnologue.com tells us that there are over 7,000 languages spoken in the world today. And according to everyone's favorite online source, Wikipedia, the full Bible has been translated into over 700 languages, and at least some part of the Bible has been translated into over 3,000 languages. Now, A side word about Wikipedia. There are purists out there who might be triggered by hearing me reference Wikipedia as a source. So let me say a few things about that. Wikipedia is not a scholarly source, but it is still useful. Consider as an example the world of medical research. Anecdotal evidence is not the gold standard but it helps us to know what topic or subject matter might be worthy of further study. It gives us a direction. And this is the way I think of a source like Wikipedia. It's very useful when we use it appropriately. When I have a casual question, Wikipedia is not a bad place to start. We can allow for some margin of error with casual questions. How many translations of the Bible are there? Wikipedia tells us a lot, more than a few, somewhere between 700 and thousands. And for me, for this question, and for the purpose of our discussion today, that is good enough. Know your tools and their limitations. Back to our topic, which is translations. Let's cover some basics. What is a translation? What does the word translation mean? The word translation comes from the Latin translatio, which means to carry across, to transport or transfer. In our case, it refers to the transfer of meaning. There are two parts to this word translation. We have trans, which means across, over, beyond. And we have latus, which means carried or born. So its basic meaning is 
to carry across. In English, the word translation is a noun, and it has more than one meaning in usage. We have its more obvious meaning in our context. A translation is a written or spoken rendering of the meaning of a word in another language. But there is another definition that adds another element that is both useful and telling. A translation is also the conversion of something from one form to another. Conversion is the key word here. It involves change or transformation. You might refer to the translation of an architect's sketch into the construction of a building. There is that element of change. And there is another related definition that introduces another element, that of movement. A translation is the process of moving something from one place to another. In orthopedics, we speak about the translation of the bones of the leg to express a state of malalignment, the movement of the bones away from each other. For example, the tibia, the bone below the knee, can translate or move off of the femur, the bone above the knee. Why am I dissecting, parsing the word translation? Because I want you to be clear about what we're talking about. The fact that the Bible is read and heard in translation is a very serious matter. You will hear me several times in this episode use this word serious. The translator is changing the original text. They have to, and they are applying their knowledge, judgment, perspective, assumptions, their worldview when making their decisions. And we are reading and hearing their words, not the writer's words. When we read a translation, we are reading and hearing the translator's filter. Over the centuries, the matter of translating the Bible was, in fact, deadly serious. In 1536, William Tyndale was executed for translating the Bible into English. Tyndale was an Englishman of the late Renaissance. He was a scholar and teacher of the Bible, and he was talented in its languages. He knew Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And in 1523, he began his quest to translate the Bible into English. The Catholic Church opposed the translation of the Bible into English. Their reference the gold standard from their perspective was the Bible translated into Latin called the Vulgate. They were so threatened by Tyndale's English translation and his advocacy for it that they had him killed. Now, you can argue that their motive was not that pure. Perhaps their resistance to the Vulgate being translated into English was more about their loss of control. If people could read the Bible themselves in their native language, why would they need the clergy? It's a fair question, and may well been at least some of what was motivating their objection. But what I am pointing out here is their seriousness about the text. Though the Vulgate was not the original text, it was the ancient translation accepted without dispute at that time. The Vulgate, 
the Latin translation of the Bible, is largely the work of 4th century A.D. monk, priest, and scholar Jerome. Jerome translated the Bible's Hebrew and Greek into Latin. The word Vulgate comes from the Latin. Vulgata means something common or ordinary. It is from the Latin vulgus that we have our English word vulgar, which means something low, so low as to be improper. Latin was the common language of Western Christianity, and so, in 382 AD, Pope Damascus I commissioned Jerome's work so that the Bible would be accessible to the common people, meaning the non-clergy. The Vulgate was completed in 405, and for over a thousand years, the Vulgate was the most commonly used translation in Western Europe. For most medieval Christians, the Vulgate was the only version of the Bible they ever encountered. Let's come back to the 16th century and the Catholic Church and the matter of translations of the Bible. For the Church, the Latin translation of the Bible, the Vulgate, was the only acceptable translation. And those such as William Tyndale, who dared defy that standard, were taken to task. Now, this took an ugly turn and they committed violence in the name of God and the Bible, and obviously I don't support this. But what I am interested in pointing out is that it demonstrates a fierce allegiance to the biblical text. The Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible, was constitutional. For them, the Word of God was the Vulgate, and you don't mess with the Word of God. The matter was so serious that it prompted the church to codify this stance. The Tyndale affair, as well as the start of the Protestant Reformation, prompted church representatives to gather and rule on these matters. This gathering was the Council of Trent. Held between 1545 and 1563, the Council of Trent was the 19th ecumenical council of the Catholic Church. Ecumenical councils are gatherings of bishops and other church authorities to consider and rule on questions of church doctrine, discipline, and administration. It was by decree of this council that the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible, was adopted as the official and only acceptable text of the Bible. The council understood that the reference the source text cannot be changed without losing its meaning and authority. The act of translating a text is a dangerous thing. Many mishaps and misadventures in the study and interpretation of the biblical text find their origin in the undertaking of translations. In a Newsweek magazine article published on December 23, 2014, entitled, the Bible, so misunderstood it's a sin. Journalist Kurt Eichenwald addresses the vexing problem of translations. He writes, quote, No television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician. Neither has the Pope. Neither have I, and neither have you. 
At best, we've all read a bad translation. A translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies and on and on hundreds of times. Unquote. Now, I don't endorse the totality of this provocative statement. Yes, he's right that none of us reads the Bible, but that's because we don't read it in its original languages, not because our translations are the product of copy errors and are therefore somehow inadequate. I also disagree with his diagnosis of the problem as he develops it in his article. In it, he attacks our misuse of what we think the Bible is expressing. But I appreciate his point that at best, we've all read a bad translation. Quite right. Not only are we all reading a bad translation, but I would go further than that. I would say that all translations are bad. In which sense are they bad? They are bad in the sense that they have a harmful effect, as in, candy is bad for my health. Translations have a harmful effect on the original text. They can't help it. As we learned, by definition and in practice, a translation changes the original text. It's the way that it works. There are myriad complexities of language that come into play with translations. I am not a linguist or a language specialist, and I don't claim to be. I am not versed at the micro level in all the nuances of grammar and syntax that explain the difficulties involved in translating a text. But this is not a discussion about the mechanics of language. My aim in this multi-part series of episodes is to explain this matter in such a way as to leave my hearers with a greater respect for the biblical text in its original languages and to proceed in their study of the Bible with some trepidation as they hear and read it in English. The student of the Bible has a responsibility to be alert and to understand the conundrum posed by reading and translation and to recognize that the issue of translation is not a side issue or a niche concern. No, it is fundamental. The whole business of understanding a text is in the meanings of the words. It is the alpha and omega of the effort. Father Paul Tarazi, in his audio commentary on the book of Exodus, explains the problem this way. He says, quote, It's all in the meanings of the words. There are no mysteries. Unquote. This is what the student of the Bible must master, the meanings of the words. And in the Bible, the words are not written in our language, and that's the pickle. Now, to say it another way, to understand a text, you must know what the words meant to the writer. If you are not hearing the Bible in its original languages, Hebrew and Greek, you are not hearing it, period. Muslims understand this, and this is built into Islam. Their source text, the Quran, is written in Arabic. This is considered so fundamental that those charged to teach the Quran must learn Arabic 
so they can hear the Quran and transmit it accurately to those they are charged to teach. For teachers, translations are not permitted, since a translation is not the text. This approach is logical. There are, of course, English translations of the Quran, and Muslims are not required to know the Quran in Arabic, but its teachers must learn it in Arabic because you have to know. It's required. This standard or principle that a text can only be read in the language in which it is written is today a thing of the past in Western culture, something of a medieval relic. As of May 2021, the Classics Department at Princeton University no longer requires that classics students take courses in the Greek or Latin language. This decision seems to me emblematic, a sign of the times, and a sad one. I don't wish to enter into the reasons for dropping the language requirement. Suffice it to say that we are living in a stupid era. Maybe not uniquely stupid, but stupid just the same. And this decision that classics majors need no longer learn Greek or Latin is stupid. But why? Well, it's stupid because it doesn't make sense. The study of classics by definition is the study of texts written in Greek and Latin. Therefore, its students must know those languages in order to engage with those texts. Basic, simple logic. And so, if you say you don't need to learn Greek or Latin, and you read it or hear it in, say, English or French, then you are not reading or hearing the classic texts. This is the death of classics at Princeton and a blow for the academy. Let's come back to the Bible and translations of the Bible. It is a complex matter, more complex than we imagine. You might wonder, what about those experts in biblical Hebrew and Greek, those who know the original languages? Aren't they able to understand the text without translation? Not necessarily. I grant you, they are in a better position than we are to understand the words. But language skills alone are inadequate. There is more going on. To translate words is a complex endeavor that is fraught with peril. The ability to read a text in its language is only one requirement. One must also understand the cultural background, the setting that is being described in order to understand idioms and metaphors, for example. But there is another piece. Our biases, our worldview, our mindset. Our biases affect our reading. Jerome, the 4th century AD translator whose work produced the Vulgate, whom we spoke about earlier, knew Biblical Hebrew. He wrote a commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes. Our famous phrase, vanity of vanities, comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is found in the Old Testament. It is a short book included among what's called the five megilot, the five scrolls. And the five scrolls 
are found in the canon in the section of the Old Testament called the Writings, the Ketubim. Recall that the Old Testament is comprised of three major sections, the Torah, the Law, the Nebi'im, the Prophets, and the Ketubim, the Writings. So back to Jerome and his commentary on Ecclesiastes. Jerome knew Biblical Hebrew, and in his commentary, he is emphatic about the need to examine the meanings of the words in the Hebrew. In fact, he makes an impressive statement about this matter in his comments on Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 14. His writing is in Latin, so for our purposes, I'll be quoting an English translation. Jerome writes, quote, We are compelled here by necessity to examine the Hebrew words more closely than we wish. It is also not possible to know the real meaning of the text unless we learn it through studying the original Hebrew words. Jerome understood the centrality of the Hebrew and he employed his biblical Hebrew skills in his commentary. But he philosophizes the content of Ecclesiastes. His explanation of Ecclesiastes is colored by his theological bent. Jerome was educated in Rome and steeped in the study of Latin literature and philosophy. He was a theologian, and theologians impose their philosophical premises onto the text. In Jerome's commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes, he retrojects content from the New Testament into the book of Ecclesiastes. For Jerome, the book of Ecclesiastes is Christ and his wisdom. We need not get into more detail about Jerome's take, so to speak, on Ecclesiastes. You can read Jerome's commentary online in English. Just Google Patristic Bible Commentary Ecclesiastes and it comes right up. The point for our discussion is that knowledge of the Biblical Hebrew and Greek is necessary but not sufficient. Our starting premises, our mindset, our worldview affect our reading. I spoke a bit about this in Episode 4 on the difference between eisegesis and exegesis. Now back to the Bible and the work of translation. More often than not, this complex endeavor and its product a translation of the biblical text, fails to render the original meaning of the words. They do not convey what the writer intended. So we are hearing and reading something else, which we then erroneously take for the biblical text. Translation errors are not just here and there. They are everywhere. And there is no one superior English translation. You might be wondering... Am I making too much of this? Aren't our English translations good enough? Isn't the gist all we really need? I don't know. I would answer this question with a question. Is it really important that Google Maps or Waze be updated regularly? Isn't my version from last year just as good? That's for you to answer. Are you willing to take the risk of getting lost? How much does the accuracy or lack of accuracy affect your drive? How much do you value getting where you need to go? This is, of course, a silly example, 
But the point is, when something is important, when we value it, we care about accuracy. We want to get it right. If we value the Bible, if it is important, if it is the Word of God, as it is for many, then it's important to understand what the biblical writer meant to say. That's all for today. In our next episode, we will discuss the challenges involved in undertaking a translation and distinguish two reasons why translators make errors. Until next time, this is Vexed. Vext is a production of the Ephesus School Network.